This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. How does the brain heal from trauma? What does the latest research on neuroplasticity tell us about how it happens? Our guest is the educator and parenting commentator Nathan Wallace, founder of X Factor Education. He is in the Christchurch studio. Nathan, kia ora. Kia ora, Catherine. How are you? Merry I'm Christmas. really well. Same to you. Thanks. Aren't we Jeez. all just hanging out for that one? <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah. I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old grandchild this Aww. year for Christmas, so, you know, they still believe in Santa, so I can't wait. Best fun. Best yeah. fun of all. All right. Uh, look, the brain, as we know, is a remarkable organ. We've learned more and more yeah. about neuroplasticity when it comes to overcoming physical traumas like stroke, for example. Mm-hmm. But how does emotional trauma physically affect the brain? Well, it has a big physical impact. I mean, when we look at neuroplasticity, it's all good news, really, Catherine. You know, all the new research is telling us that we've, uh, neuro, neuroplasticity is more and more common than we thought. You know, we've always known that you had a degree of neuroplasticity because if someone has a stroke and loses language, they can still learn to talk again. But we thought you had to only have extreme conditions like brain trauma, like a stroke, before you had neuroplasticity. Whereas now we know it's really natural and common. So in answer to your question, in the same way that we can heal the brain quite easily, the brain also unfortunately responds to that emotional trauma physically. So the structure of your brain is always adapting to the environment to respond to the environment. So if there's a trauma, we see things like your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain, um, can grow larger especially our repeated trauma, something you're exposed to over and over again. But even if the trauma's large enough, a single trauma at a, you know, at the right age can cause that amygdala to grow. Um, we see that, and that's your anger centre, if you like, your emotional centre. So the stronger your emotions are, the less access you've got to your rational, logical brain. And it's really that rational, logical brain that is the path to healing. So it's the frontal cortex, it's the most recently evolved part of your brain. And when we're talking about healing from emotional trauma, healing from any sort of trauma, we're really talking about trying to bring that frontal cortex online. That's the brain that controls your emotions, has higher intelligence, sees things from other people's point of view. It's really your wellness brain is up there. It's about bringing that online. So this is the emergency brain, if you like, the the, um, the at-risk, I'm-at-risk part of the brain that That's right. physically grows in size. Yeah, it's like the car alarm in the brain, if you like. It's the going bleep, 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 danger, danger, danger. Will Smith, it's, um, and, that, and when that amygdala, the larger that is, the less access you tend to have to your frontal cortex. What's, um, what's the kind of trauma that will lead to this? It's, it's pretty much anything that causes uh, great stress or yeah. prolonged stress. What kinds yeah. of things? So much of it's tied up with um, developmental stage too. Like the younger you are, the the more neuroplasticity you've got, so the more impact that trauma is going to have. So the type of trauma that can impact the brain, I mean, neglect we talk about as the mother of trauma because it actually has the biggest physical impact. You know, if you think about a child being, you know, horrific sort of abuse, being beaten, that doesn't actually do as much damage to the brain as being completely neglected and locked in a cupboard. Um, Because um, even if you're being abused, your brain has to react and it has to respond. So it is therefore, it's a negative reaction and a negative response, but at least your brain is responding. Whereas when you're neglected, there's just no stimulus from the environment, there is no brain response, so it, it really inhibits the growth of your brain more than physical abuse. So there's the um, amygdala impact, but then is there 
other underdeveloped parts of the brain, particularly yeah. where there is a lack, where, where there is neglect or a lack of interaction, a lack of um, bonding yep. with a primary caregiver, attachment, all these sorts of things. Again, we, we think of them as behavioural consequences, but there's actually a physiological consequence. Yeah, I think that's what neuroscience really helps to enlighten us about that stuff, that the, yeah, there is a physical response, and it helps us to see that it is just the brain's adaption to the environment. You know, the brain's adapting to that particular trauma, and it probably responds quite well to that trauma, but then it takes that same brain pattern to the rest of life and, and is dysfunctional. Um, yeah, so when I say the amygdala is impacted, the whole brain is impacted, like you're saying. It's really just the amygdala is the really obvious one. Uh, if you're, you've got quite a different brain scan for a traumatised person because they tend to stay in their lower brain, and that's where your survival brain is. You can, for the sake of simplicity, you can sort of divide the brain into two key areas. One half is survival, and then the other half is all of this optional um, well-being stuff. And basically they work like they're on a set of scales. So if we want your optimal well-being brain to be all up and active, then we need your survival brain to be down and nice and calm. And when people have come from, especially in the first thousand days of life, when the brain's, you know, designed to be working out what sort of brain it needs, if you're traumatised then, then this first survival brain tends to take the driving seat. So we don't see all the physical structures in the frontal cortex, empathy, the ability to control emotions, to understand consequences, to set goals, all the really good stuff that's going to make you a nice, you know, socially functioning person doesn't come online. But the good news is, like I said at the start about neuroplasticity, that now we know it can be brought online. It's never, ever too late. Basically, if you've got a beating heart, then your brain has some neuroplasticity, so it can be healed. We can bring those things back online. It's just it takes some work. When we talk about it, are we talking, when we were thinking of the physical effects like stroke, it was often that another part of the brain might step up actually and start yep. doing a job it's not trained to do. Yep. Is, is that the case also with the, uh, with, with, the, with the trauma or can you train and build muscle in the part of the brain that's neglected or as you say, tone down or even shrink in size the amygdala that's, that's, that's over dominating? Yeah. What yeah. physiologically are we talking about? It does tend to be that if there is actual brain trauma, like a stroke, where there is, um, you know, cells die, um, then the brain has to, if those cells are dead, the cell, brain doesn't bring them back to life, so they, like you were saying, assign another part of the brain, usually in the same area, but another group of um, cells. So that's one type of neuroplasticity. But when you're talking about emotional trauma, and we're talking about the emotion, the um, amygdala is enlarged and the hippocampus or the memory has shriveled down, then you can actually yeah, get that hippocampus to grow again. You can get that amygdala to shrink. So it's sort of half and half, Catherine. Half of it is reassigning another area. Half of it is you can bring those areas back online, the original area. Because the brain is designed to be adaptable like that. It's designed to be always interacting with the environment and working out what sort of brain you need and, I mean, the younger you are, the more adaptability it has. So in that first thousand days, it kinds of thinks that the first thousand days, which was from conception until two and a bit, it does that as data-gathering period, and it kind of sets that as a base program that that's what you're going to be experiencing for your whole life and gives you a brain for a lifetime full of what you experienced in the first thousand days. So you're taking that brain pattern, but then after that, the brain is always interacting with the environment and adapting that program. However, mm. it can be a big job if there's a lot of work to do, just like if we think of it as physically retraining a body that's been in bed for a year. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. There's a lot of work to do to, to, to build the muscle and to, and to get all the parts working together as well. So what is yep. it? 
what's the sorts of things you can do when you are working with, um, let's presume we're working with a child in the first instance yep. and quite a young child, mm-hmm. what are some of the things you can do and persevere with to begin to get this neuroplasticity change happening? Right. I always get, um, when I'm working with children, with parents, with anyone really, I get them to understand that you've got four different brains in your head, going from the bottom to the top. I mean, obviously they all come together as one brain, but it's going to help to know how to heal the brain and bring this coveted frontal cortex online if you understand that's brain number four. And it's like building a house to get this wonderful frontal cortex that's got empathy and controlling your emotions and and wellness then you've got to build brains one, two, and three because it is like building a house. No builder builds the roof first and leaves that suspended with a crane. That's just not how you build a house. So it's just not how you build a brain either. To get to that wonderful stuff, build brains one, two, three, and four. So brain one is survival. Brain two is movement. Brain three is emotion. And then brain four is this rational thinking and learning brain. So to understand that if brain number one, the survival brain, is aroused and active and fight, flight or freeze is active, then like the scales I referred to before, if brain one and brain four are on scales, if brain one's active, you're not going to get brain four. So first of all, for when we're healing trauma, one of the first things we've got to do is calm what a trauma expert calls the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal glands. It's like the highway of stress in the body. You have to calm that down. Now that can actually be dead simple. We talked about how there's a lot of work in healing from trauma. But actually, this part can be incredibly simple. Controlled breathing will just physiologically calm that down. So you breathe in on the count of six, and you breathe out on the count of six, and you breathe in on the count of six, and you breathe out on the count of six. You do that for two minutes, and that will override the stress response system in the body. It will physiologically calm you down, it will calm your breathing, calm your heart rate, and it gives that frontal cortex a chance to come online. So that could be brain number one, calm that survival response. Brain number two is the movement brain. So I think most people are aware about the role of exercise and well-being. The exercise releases endorphins, and endorphins are like the neurochemicals in your brain that allow for neuroplasticity. The more endorphins you've got, the more neuroplasticity you've got. So exercise is one of those things we can see really clearly, releases endorphins into your brain and gives you the good physical conditions for neuroplasticity and for changing and healing the brain. And it doesn't have to be being a whole gym bod and, you know, going to the gym for two hours a day. The literature is actually now using this term, the letterbox effect whereby just walking to the letterbox to check the mail and walking back again releases enough endorphins in your brain to have uh, to bring about a little bit of a change. Um, so, yeah, brain number two, you can say we need exercise. Brain number three and brain number four is where it gets more complicated because now you're into the emotional brain. You know, brain number three needs that emotional nurturing. Um, you basically need to calm those emotions. Brain, the amygdala that we talked about before, the amygdala is like the bridge between that survival brain, brain number one, and your emotional brain, because they're clearly connected. You know, it's when your emotions go, ah, oh, you know, I'm scared, that your survival brain triggers that HPA axis. So for brain number three, it's really about calming your emotions. A lot of that self-care, that can be as simple as making sure that you do the things that you know look after yourself. Like if you de-stress by having a bath, then make sure you prioritise having a bath. Um, And then brain number four, this frontal cortex, Um, once you've done brains one, two and three, it's going to be much easier to access brain number four. And then brain number four, a lot of that in in healing from trauma is actually about the self-talk. Everyone's got that voice inside their head. Um, And so a lot of therapy and training and, um, and healing someone from trauma is about 
retraining that self-talk so that it's positive. Interesting email to that effect. I healed my brain from emotional trauma by faking it until I made it. I never turned down a social invitation and always turned up with my happy face on. Same with work. I allowed myself to crumple outside of such situations until one day I didn't need to anymore. I love that. It, 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 <laughs> you, you, you know, there's, there's different ways of coming at things sometimes. You know, you, if there's yep. an underlying issue that needs counselling, get counselling. But I love this point that if whatever we keep telling ourselves, whatever we, whatever we keep doing, um, determinedly doing and believing, over time yeah. we come to believe. And that can be negative and it can be positive. That's absolutely true. That's the whole sort of basis of cognitive behavioural therapy. It is sort of, it's coming at it from different angles. We can go to the heart of the problem and unwrap your childhood and you talk about your uh, narrative, or we can just go at it from the surface like that and calm it down from the surface. Or even do a bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Different well, it things is. in I, different situations. Yep. Another emailer here. Any suggestion for dealing with hypervigilance of thinking? I'm recovering from derealisation, depersonalisation disorder, which has been extremely traumatic. Mm-hmm. I've had to constantly direct my mind to other things to recover, but the process of doing this has made me hypervigilant. Thanks for any suggestions. Okay, yeah. Um, I think, first of all, was make sure that your basic stuff like circadian rhythm, your sleep cycle and your eating cycle are, you know, unstable. That if you've got an irregular circadian rhythm and you're sometimes getting six hours sleep, sometimes getting two, then getting 16 hours sleep, that's a recipe for, um, you know, a mental illness. So make sure the basics are covered, like circadian rhythm and your eating stuff. Then I see it as a left brain, right brain thing. When you're overthinking, 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 that's the, um, the left frontal cortex. In fact, in the, in the neuroscience literature, we talk about how depression is, or anxiety is the inability to turn off the problem-solving functions of the left prefrontal cortex. So it's good that you've got this problem-solving function. When you can't balance your checkbook, it keeps going in the back of your mind, and three hours later you go, oh, Starbucks, that's right, I brought that coffee, that's where that $4 went, and you've solved the problem. But if you can't turn that part of your brain off, and it's a problem that you can't solve, you know, you, someone's died, or you know, there's a problem that you can't solve, and your brain keeps trying to solve that problem, um, that's an inability to turn off that problem-solving function. That leads to depression. So what you can do are things to calm that left brain. Um, the things that the literature talk about is um, meditative stuff like yoga. Um, you've got this high, this high way of stress in your body. I talked about the HPA axis, but there's this thing called the vagus nerve, and how good your vagal tone is is how well you calm down. So if you've got good vagal tone, you can probably... Um, it's effective to turn off that thinking. If you don't have good vagal tone, that thinking keeps going. So the thing that improves the vagal tone is yoga. So the practice of yoga can directly um, counteract that ability to overthink. Sometimes it's just a biological thing too. You know, you've got neurotransmitters. So a lot of people with anxiety, because that inability to turn off that problem-solving function can be anxiety, are very low in GABA. So you sort of got four basic neurotransmitters going through your system. Most people wear serotonin that regulates your mood. And then dopamine is like the reward system. And then there's one that stimulates your thinking and your higher intellect called, we'll just call it ACE, because it's a big scientific word, but it starts with ACE. And then GABA is like the brakes on all of those things. So if we don't have anxiety and I go to bed and I'm high in ACE and I'm thinking, 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 um, but then I go, all right, time to go to sleep, my brain releases GABA and that um, is like the brakes on that, and so then I can go to sleep. Whereas if you're low in GABA, your brain doesn't release that, so you're just high in ACE, so you just keep thinking, 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 and can't fall asleep. So there are things that you can do to um, lift the amount of GABA. You know, there's a certain tea that you can drink. If people are interested in that, just go online. There's a free online test that 
checks your levels of neurotransmitters by asking you about 80 true-false questions. It's called the Braverman test. B-R-A-V-E-R-M-A-N. Braverman test. You just go online, it's free, answer all these questions and it'll give you a readout at the end telling you approximately what level those four neurotransmitters are in your system. And because it's quite asked lots of questions, it's actually more accurate than if you went and had a blood test done at the lab. Um, but it will um, give you an idea. It's an incredible piece of equipment between our ears and it's good to know there are physical things we can do, many physical things we can do to help. We can come at this so many ways. Absolutely. Um, I do recall one other point I just want to make before we wrap up because I remember yeah. this being especially important when we were talking about people caring for tra- for traumatised children and particularly children who'd had neglect during those first three years mm-hmm. you talked about the movement brain and the rocking I mean this is what parents instinctively do with babies but yep. um, I remember you saying at the time that even if a child is older you need to go back and go through the process of what ought to have happened in those young years. Absolutely, absolutely. If you're talking about neglect in that first thousand days that's when the brain was building itself. So yes you can fix that but you don't just go straight you know you have to go and rebuild those. So yep. if I adopt a seven year old from Russia I don't treat him as a seven year old if he spent seven years lying in a cot being, you know, having his nappy change and being looked after by a roster rather than a person. I have to treat him as, even though he's seven chronologically, I have to treat him developmentally like he's zero. So I have to attach first. Even before we worry about that rocking and that movement, number one is attachment, the dyadic relationship. I've got to fall in love with him and get him to fall in love with me. You don't get your newborn baby home from the hospital and go, right, here's the rules, here's the boundaries, here's the consequences if you break those boundaries. So you can't do that to the seven-year-old either. Yeah. If he's, you know, hasn't had brains one, two and three built, you built brain number one by just loving your baby and getting him to fall in love with you. And then you, then you built brain number two with things like rocking the baby. People aren't aware that they're putting in a rhythmic pattern to their baby's oh. brain when they're rocking them and when they're winding them but have you ever seen anyone do that arrhythmically? No, patting no. the back, all of that stuff, yeah, rubbing yeah, the back. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's all just putting in rhythmic patterns so with that seven year old we've adopted we need to do the same thing for him so if he's too big for me to rock I might do less of that but I might make sure there's a hammock up in the lounge so if he's wasting time watching telly at least he's in a hammock and he's got his foot against the wall and he's rocking rhythmically while he's spending an hour watching telly, he's now spent an hour effectively being rocked like we spent an hour rocking our babies. Um, it just reminded me sure why I enjoy rocking chairs so much, actually. I mean, this right. is, this is <laughs> yeah, funny well, stuff. It is. It's nice and calming. This because, is funny. There's all, you yeah. know, and it's, it's not kooky. It's just what the brain yeah. knows, wants, Yeah, needs. that's right. That's mm. right. When you're in a survival mode, you tend to be irregular. You know, you're panting and you're breathing. Um, you don't have that steady rhythm. So a nice, steady rhythm sort of calms that lower brain. Won't be that on Christmas Day, though, Nathan. That's all for. No. <laughs> Let it rip. <laughs> It'll be all over the show. Yep. <laughs> Let it rip. Hey, thanks so much. Good Got to talk to you, Catherine. Great. Kia ora.